Greetings and welcome to the audio etheric transmission, The Tales of Sage and Savant, a Twin Star production. This broadcast is brought to you on the first of each month from the Twin Star Studios in sunny Southern California. Our tale stars Eddie Louise as Dr. Petronella Sage, Chip Michael as Professor Erasmus Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Mix Abigail Entwistle, and myself, Justin Bremer, as your humble narrator. Special guests in this episode are Della Rose, Richard Norton, and King Jaquel Martin. This month's program, entitled A Most Shocking and Unnatural Event, is sponsored by World Weaver Press and features the music of New Orleans Steam Cog Orchestra. And now, without further ado, we bring you the tales of Sage and Savant. Come with me and conquer time. Transmigration journeys expand your mind. The past and future are not aligned. Come with me and conquer time. One thousand years we transverse, what will still be true? A thousand years remember, is death all we recall? One heartbeat between our lives, one truth above When last we saw our heroes, they had pulled themselves out of the ruins of a rail bridge and the detritus of stymied declarations of love. The reality of their untenable position made them a little skittish with each other at first, but the naturally optimistic side of the professor's personality soon leapt to work, and he set about doing the exact thing he promised, changing the culture at King's. Savant has begun a charm offensive, targeting the heads of all departments about removing the strictures against married women as fellows, lecturers, and professors. The literature department was the first, and he was delighted to have success with Dr. Johnstone. Now he has isolated Provost Cunningham in the men's gymnasium to see what might be done about the physical sciences. My! That is a robust form of calisthenics. Hello, Professor Savant. Uh, not calisthenics, weightlifting, as practiced by the ancient Greeks, soon to be featured in that pinnacle of athleticism, the Olympics. The Olympics? But that is ancient Greece. Are you planning on time travel? Don't be ridiculous. Time travel is a fairy tale. I happen to be good friends with William Penny Brooks, and in his latest letter he has assured me that we will see a revival of the glorious athletic tradition within little more than a year. A modern Olympics. Fascinating. Uh, care if I join you? Delighted. But if this is your first time lifting, you might wish to start with the five-pound weights. It can be quite taxing. <sighs> oh, gracious. Well, that feels good. Yes, those Greek men did not receive bodies worthy of being carved in marble from the gods. They worked for that fine musculature. I see, and are you desirous of being carved in marble? <laughs> oh, oh, no, no, though I, I wouldn't mind being the one doing the carving. Oh, why, Mix Cunningham? 
Do you have aspirations of being a sculptor? No. I would have liked, once upon a time, to consider a life as an artist, a painter specifically, but it wasn't in the cards. Why ever not? Cunninghams do not lower themselves to the trades. The sad fact is, most painters must make their living doing something else than painting canvases. Either that, or be prepared to live in the depths of poverty. And that was a fate my parents were unwilling to consider. So, I went to medical school. It turns out I have no stomach for blood, but a great talent for administration. So here I am, first provost of the physical science wing, to not have a doctor by my name. Oh well. Speaking of doctors, I should like to talk to you about the contribution and consideration of our doctors of the fairer sex. What about them? Well, you see, it has recently come to my attention that it is hazardous to the career of a female doctor to enter the matrimonial state. Pish posh! No woman wishes to continue her medical practice after marriage. It goes against the natural order. Once a girl is married, her thoughts turn to children and home. Oh, that is a rather short-sighted view. We men seem to be able to marry and maintain our ambitions. Of course. Men are more intellectually advanced creatures. We can manage the demands of married life and work life with more facility. Women become distracted by those self-same demands. Did you ever consider this might be because the majority of work in maintaining the family home is foisted onto the woman? Now you are speaking rubbish. The roles consequent to each party of wedlock are determined by the natural gifts granted to each. History itself proves this. To men the hunt, to women the hearth. Oh, I am quite sure that- I would love to stay and debate you on this, old chap, but I have a provost committee meeting and really cannot be late. We shall have to take this up at another time. Keep up the weightlifting, it does wonders for the constitution. And with that, Cunningham dashes the professor's hopes. Sage had warned him that Cunningham was intractable, but Savant was not conceding the race yet. He would just have to find another opportunity to convince the provost that marriage should not be a barrier to science. Meanwhile, back in the laboratory, a contest of an entirely different shape was underway. I understand your reservations, Abigail, but we have proven the auto-recall system works, and there are three levels of fail-safes on the equipment. I also know that your first trip through time and space was very traumatic, but now that we've solved the problem of recall, there does not have to be trauma, and there is such a lot to be experienced out in the world, entire lives that we can sample. <laughs> I find that a bit rich, considering you've just returned from the worst railway disaster in recent time. I will grant you that, but before that we had a most pleasant month in the circus. I would never trade the one for fear of the other. The days in the circus did seem quite exciting, but how can you determine where we might end up? We are just beginning to be able to accurately pinpoint a time, we still have no guarantee of circumstance. I put it to you this way, Abigail. Most lives are untouched by violence. In fact, the life that you entered in Pompeii was relatively safe from the scourge, but by the volcano itself. I believe, thanks to pre-scheduled recall, that more and more of our travels shall be like that, without the need for death to end them. Tell me honestly. If you had met Hilaria and spent three days with her and left before the volcano erupted, would you not have greatly enjoyed that time? Well, yes, 
Oh, hello, Professor. Hello, Erasmus. Uh, hello, ladies. Oh, this looks like a serious discussion. I'm trying to convince Abigail to transmigrate with us. I've already set up the third platform. Oh, yes, do come along, Abigail. It would be jolly fun to have the three of us out and about for once. I don't wish to disappoint you, Professor, but... Well, that's I... settled then, isn't it? Where are we headed today, Petra dear? I had thought we would try North America, mid-century. There are few active wars and great prosperity. I believe that will offer the maximum chance of finding an adventure that does not involve tragedy. Well... Don't forget that for the three of us to travel, there must be three bodies to transmigrate into. I've thought about that. I've updated the Faraday armor with new stomach guards that have ferromagnetic properties in an Archimedean spiral. Now, when the electricity reaches our suited bodies, the stomach plates will act as electrodynamic resonators, ensuring that we all stay close together. If my theories prove out, we'll never have to worry about being separated in space again. Please say you'll come along, Abigail. I promise to look after you. Well, it does seem like this might solve one of the major problems. Good. It's settled then. Abigail, here is your Faraday armor. Erasmus, yours is on the hook in the dressing room. I shall get the technical setup completed whilst you two dress. But, but uh, I'm... Laboratory of Dr. Petronella Sage, King's College, 3rd March, 1895. Cladney pitch at E-flat 4 and harmonics in the Aeolian mode. The lateral flexion amplitude delineator, which will be referred to as the LFAD in all future notes, is engaged and targeted for North America, summer 1848. I have added electrodynamic resonators based on an Archimedean spiral to all three Faraday suits, which should serve to keep us together at the arrival point. Laboratory assistant Abigail Entwistle will join Professor Erasmus Savant and I on this transmigration. I have set recall for two days hence in order to soothe Mix Entwistle's apprehensions. The automatic laboratory system will serve if they don't, after three days, we will know that we have failed and we must make other arrangements for getting home. Other arrangements? What other arrangements? Now, Abigail, don't go getting cold feet on me. That's easy for you to say. Oh, buck up, girl. Petra has seen me home safe time and time again, and even that when we got separated in Senegal. Now that she has figured out how to keep us together, we're in for a jolly holiday! And so, against her better judgment, Abigail takes her place on the slab next to our two adventurers, and together they make the leap through time and space. What adventures will they have? We'll find out after this short musical break. And now, dear friends, we invite you to listen to the delightful syncopated rhythms of New Orleans Steam Cog Orchestra.
to our story. I am delighted to inform you that the new resonators worked exactly as the doctor theorized and kept the travelers close together. In fact, they have awoken in the bodies of three siblings in the prime of their lives, which sadly were cut short by the discovery of a cave with the unfortunate quality of being a home to a natural gas seep. This undiscovered geological phenomena was safely sealed behind a rhododendron hell and had lain undisturbed until our three young explorers, looking for a touch of adventure before the eldest of them got married, crawled into it. The gas seep concealed at the back of the cavern ensured that the rocky cathedral was entirely filled with methane. Methane, being an odorless, inert gas, had caused asphyxiation in the three explorers before they were more than two or three steps within the cave. This led to a rough awakening. <laughs> Hold your breath and follow me! Realizing that her body was experiencing asphyxiation, but there was no obstruction in the throat, gave Sage the notion that the cause must be an inhalant. Gesturing to the other two to follow, the doctor crawled for the light filtering in from the cave entrance. Once they are all outside the cave under the hell, she attempts to explain. Gas! There must have been some type of, of gas! We need to move out farther, get fresh air! In the excitement, I have failed to tell you one very important fact. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Oh my goodness, oh, this is new. When the three reach the edge of the rhododendrons and stand up, they get the first good look at each other. Abigail is in the body of a young girl, 15 years old, with broad cheeks and a smile to match. Sage is in a girl with the same facial features, but must be a few years older because rather than plates, her hair is caught back from her face and swept up in a ribbon. The final member of the party... I'm a girl! Is the professor, an identical copy of the others, only a year or so older and firmly in the realm of womanhood. It is this girl that is soon to be married. I am, am I not? A girl? 
Only it seems that I'm a bit top-heavy, and there's this awful lot of hair on my head, if I'm not... (laughs) No, you are correct. You seem to be in the body of a young woman. Around 20 years of age, I would say, wouldn't you, Abigail? Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, I suppose. Uh, Around my age. Although I seem to be a bit on the childish side just now. Well, there's no way for us to find out who we are from the rhododendrons, and there does not seem to be anyone else around. Does anyone have anything on their person? A pocket? A reticule? Oh, oh, I seem to have something tucked in my corset. Women's bodies are so squishy. Oh, how handy that is for hiding things away. The professor pulls forth a folded sheet of fine linen writing paper. He unfolds it to read... Robert and Esther McIntyre kindly request your presence at the nuptials of their eldest daughter, Charlotte, to Master Jonathan Graham, Esquire, on the 20th of July, 1848, at the Wesleyan Methodist Chapel in Seneca Falls. Ceremony, 5 p.m., followed by dinner and dancing. Please RSVP at Lennox House. Well, there, see? We have a name. We are the McIntyre sisters. A place, Seneca Falls, and a date... July 1848. I'd say we'd be well served by finding a road, yes? How do you propose we do that? There's a cave behind us, true, but forest in all other directions. We follow the trail the girls left on their way into the cave, obviously. Trail? I'm afraid that's not obvious to me. Oh, there. See where the ferns are beaten down. And, um, here. Do you see the scuff marks? We might as well have signposts. These girls definitely did not have woodcraft. You are certainly revealing a new facet of your talents, Abigail. How do you come by these skills? Oh, me father is quite the deer stalker, and every autumn he takes me with him to produce a buck or two. I've been reading trail signs since I was wee. Abigail led them confidently through the woods, following signs that the other two could not see. They had been walking for about ten minutes when... Ladies. What is it, Erasmus? Something's wrong in my belly. My lower belly. Describe. Well, there's a kind of a pressure. It's a little bit uncomfortable. And there's a strange twitching of some interior muscles. Do you need to urinate? I don't know. Maybe. Well, why don't you try that first? Excusing herself, the professor moves off a ways into the forest and finds a likely spot behind a giant fern. Ten minutes later, she returns. Is everything all right? Yes. Erasmus? It's fine. I just peed on my shoes. (laughs) You did? Oh, I'm sorry. It is not easy learning how to squat. Girls have to squat when they... Oh, well, of course... I just hadn't thought of it before. Oh, my dear friend, I doubt that this is the only thing you will encounter that is different about being a girl. I shall bear up, after all. You have managed in masculine bodies more than once. The ladies say nothing more about it, not wishing to torture the poor man. Before long, they have attained the road, and a busy road it is. Wagons and carriages of all sort make their way northwards, raising clouds of dust in the hot afternoon sun. The girls run up next to a carriage to ask where everyone is going. Hello! Hello, I'm Miss McIntyre. Might I inquire where everyone is going this fine day? Good day to you, Miss. 
Herbert Baker, reporter for the National Reformer, at your service. We are all going to Seneca Falls for the Women's Rights Convention, of course. Are you girls from around here? Yes, uh, it seems that we are. Well, climb aboard and I'll give you a ride into town. The travellers climbed into the carriage and rode the rest of the way to town in comfort. If it can be said that the jolting, jarring ride of a hard leather-covered seat suspended over iron-bound wooden wheels is comfortable. Along the way, Herbert Baker informed the girls of his reasoning for travelling to Seneca Falls from Syracuse. Over the next two days, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and Lucretia Mott will host a convention to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women. Yes, I know, it is very exciting. Although the first day is reserved for women attendees only, I am hoping to be allowed to sit in the back and record the speeches for my newspaper. The second day, they plan to open the floor to men as well as women. It should be an historic occasion. Oh, it is! Oh, I mean it, it will be. Dr. Sage shot a warning glance at the professor. She seemed likely to burst into a historian's soliloquy over the news that she would be in Seneca Falls for the famous convention. Luckily, she managed to hold her enthusiasm, and they soon arrived in downtown Seneca Falls. The town was small and quaint, as most American villages of the era were. A few clapboard houses, a scattering of brick buildings along the main thoroughfare, a church or two, a bank, and a general store. The only thing remarkable about the village at all was that so many people were arriving for the conference. Fearing their reporter might ask questions they couldn't answer, Dr. Sage asked the coachman to let them out at the first corner. Goodbye, Mix Baker. Goodbye. Perhaps we'll see you at the convention. They watched the carriage move down the main street, one of dozens of vehicles jockeying for position in the suddenly crowded road. Ladies, do you have any idea how momentous it is that we are here? Now? I think so, yes. Is this not when Stanton presents her Declaration of Sentiments? Oh, right! We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. I didn't realize that it had happened so long ago. When are we again? 16th of July, 1848. Oh, come, we must get to the Methodist Chapel before all the good seats are taken. I hope they'll let me in. Well, even if it is just to sit in the back with Mix Baker. Erasmus. Yes? You won't have to sit in the back, Erasmus. But Mix Baker said that the day was only for the women, and that if they let the men in, it would only be to the... Oh. Yes, oh. Abigail, I'm a woman! We had noticed. This means I can fully participate in the conference which kicked off the whole of the suffragette movement here in the Americas. This is so exciting! We will leave our travelers as they find their way into the conference and pause for a word from our sponsor. Do you remember the great indie bands of the 90s? Those tantalizing musicians with the attitude of mavericks who signed with smaller independent record agencies so they could produce the music they wanted without worrying about the top 40. Well now, that same creative energy and vision has become part of the book world. Indie publishers like our sponsor, World Weaver Press, bring all the knowledge of the big New York publishers with none of the corporate bottom line that requires book deals to be based on potential sales. What does this mean to you? It means you can find books that exist outside of the mainstream. Books written by authors with unique voices and strange new worlds to explore. 
World Weaver Press is an independently owned and operated publisher of fantasy, paranormal, and science fiction that works with authors and editors all over the globe to bring you stories with an independent edge. Check out their offerings at www.worldweaverpress.com. Yes, dear friends, you heard it here. World Weaver Press believes in challenging genre boundaries and engaging the fundamental human drive to tell stories. And now, back to our show. The atmosphere in the hall was electric. 300 people had come to hear the speeches. Elizabeth Caddy Stanton took the stage and called the conference to order. Welcome, gentle persons. On behalf of myself, Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, and my co-chairs, Lucretia Coffin-Moss and Martha Coffin-Wright, we are assembled to protest against a form of government existing without the consent of the governed to declare our right to be free as man is free, to be represented in the government which we are taxed to support, to have such disgraceful laws as give man the power to chastise and imprison his wife, to take the wages which she earns, the property which she inherits, and in case of separation, the children of her love. In progress towards these complaints, we have prepared a declaration of rights and sentiments. Would you hear it? When, in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one portion of the family of man to assume among the people of the earth a position different from that which they have hitherto occupied, but one to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes that impel them to such a course. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted deriving their powers from the consent of the governed. Whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these rights, it is the right of those who suffer from it to refuse allegiance to it and to insist upon the institution of a new government laying its foundations on such principles and organizing its powers in such forms as to them shall seem most likely to affect their safety and happiness. The Declaration of Sentiments is truly a remarkable document written to reflect Thomas Jefferson's original American Declaration of Independence. Through the rest of the day, the women in attendance discussed and debated the list of sentiments. The history of mankind is a history of repeated injuries and usurpation on the part of man toward woman. Having in direct object the establishment of an absolute tyranny over her. To prove this, let facts be submitted to a candid world. 
has compelled her to submit to laws in the formation of which she has no voice. He has made her, if married, in the eye of the law, civilly dead. He has made her morally an irresponsible being, as she can commit many crimes with impunity, provided they be done in the presence of her husband. In the covenant of marriage, she is compelled to promise obedience to her husband, he becoming, to all intents and purposes, her master the law giving him power to deprive her of her liberty and to administer chastisement. He closes against her all the avenues to wealth and distinction which he considers most honorable to himself. As a teacher of theology, medicine, or law, she is not known. After the 19 sentiments were read out, the conventioners discussed a list of 11 resolutions these resolutions called on Americans to regard any laws that placed women in an inferior position to men as having no force or authority. They resolved for women to have equal rights within the church and equal access to jobs. Most of the social and moral rights were accepted at face value, but the call for voting rights was a bridge too far for some convention attendees, including, in fact, Mrs. Stanton's own husband. The evening wound up with a speech by Lucretia Mott of which the National Reformer said, One of the most eloquent, logical, and philosophical discourses which we ever listened to. As the convention was breaking apart for the night and our heroes were beginning to wonder where they might sleep, they were approached by a strange man. He was rather short, round-faced, and of jocular disposition. Oh, there you are, my dears. Is this not the most exciting day? I do believe Miss Mott outdid herself tonight. Such a wonderful speeches, such bright future ahead for you, my darlings. Father? Oh, yes, darling, Jenny. Ah, uh, never mind. He was just checking. And so, with little fanfare, they were taken home, fed a good supper of lamb and farm-fresh vegetables, and put to bed with admonishments to get a good night's sleep, because tomorrow they would hear the great Frederick Douglass speak. The second day of the convention was even more packed than the first, as now men were allowed to join. The Declaration of Sentiments was read again and was unanimously approved. One hundred people stepped forth to sign it, 68 women and 32 men. At the afternoon session, the 11 resolutions were read again and each one was voted on individually. The only one that was materially questioned was the ninth, the one Stanton had added regarding women's right to vote. It read, Resolved that it is the duty of the women of this country to secure to themselves their sacred right to the elective franchise. After much back and forthing, Frederick Douglass, the great statesman, rose. Uh, I can't see. Oh, here, Jenny, darling, you stand here. I'll move back. I'm the tallest, and I can see just fine from back here. I cannot accept the right to vote myself. As a black man, if woman cannot also claim that right. The world would be a better place if women were involved in the political sphere. In this, denial the right to participate in government, not merely the degradation of woman and the perpetuation of great injustice happens but the maiming and the repudiation of one half of the moral and intellectual power of the government of the world. Lottie. Lottie. Charlotte. Charlotte. Oh, that's me. Yes, Charlotte. 
Come along now. Uh, but Mix Douglas is speaking. That is exactly why you must come along. No wife of mine will give credence to his sort. His sort? What do you mean his sort? The abolitionist sort. But... The suffragist sort. <sighs> the negro sort. <sighs> I won't ask you again. Come on. I will not. I am going to stay here at the convention and listen to the speeches of whomever I want. Lottie McIntyre, you mind me. Abigail and Sage are so caught up in the enthusiasm for Mix Douglas' speech that they don't notice the contretemps happening behind them. In respect to political rights, we hold women to be justly entitled for all we claim from men. We go farther and express the convictions that all political rights which is expedient for men to exercise is equally so for women. All that distinguishes man as intelligent and accountable being is equally true of woman. And if the government, which is only governed by the free consent of the governed, there can be no reason in the world for denying women the right to exercise the elective franchise or in hand of making and administrating laws of the land. Our doctrine is that right is of no sex. Now you come away with me, Lottie. This instant, he takes our professor's slender arm in an iron grip and drags her out of the hall and into the darkened street. I don't want to go with you. Ow! I told you to mind me. You are going to have to learn your place, Charlotte McIntyre. My place is where I wanted to be, just as Mrs. Stanton says. I warned your father that this was no place for well-brought-up young women, and I was right. Before the doctor and her young assistant even realize the professor is not in the hall, Graham has clapped his hand over her mouth and dragged her away from the lights at the center of town. The professor is not yet aware that she has any real thing to fear in this instance. She is thinking like a man, that once they are away from the noise and the excitement, they will face each other and talk this through eye to eye. For his part, young Graham has left the territory of reasonable thought. His lizard brain is in control, his thoughts consumed with ownership and respect for his station and lust for dominance. Graham pulls her to a dark and unused corner of the tack room in the livery stable. The air is full of the wholesome scents of hay and horses and shit. As the door closed behind her in the gloom, Savant begins to realize the true danger she is in. Jonathan, this is no way to treat your affianced wife. If we're to marry in two days, we must reach an understanding on how we comport ourselves in private. If we are to marry. Make no mistake, you empty-headed thing. We are as good as married already. Your father would never break the marriage contract, no matter how he coddles you. He would lose the farm, and then what of your sisters? You wouldn't. Why would you do such a horrible thing? It is business. Business, I might add, that your father was most anxious to enter into. My father would never treat me as property. He, he's there in the hall, cheering and supporting those women and that negro you are so disparaging of. When I tell him of how you've treated me this evening, he will call off the wedding and you will be run out of town on a rail. It was a brave and foolish thing to say, no matter the truth of it. Erasmus has inadvertently illuminated the roadmap for the next terrible minutes. For if she is correct that her father would rather be bankrupt than see his daughter in a faithless marriage, Graham has lost his leverage. 
1848, there is still one way that a man can ensure he maintains control of such a situation. He removes his belt. What are you doing? Ensuring that we will be married in two days as planned. I would rather die than marry a specimen such as yourself, Jonathan Graham. As if you had a choice in the matter. <coughs> I... It... Ladies and gentlemen, I apologize. I do realize it is my duty to describe the scene. There are some scenes that are too violating, too barbaric to bear description. Suffice it to say that consent was neither sought nor given, which is the most heinous crime that can be perpetrated against an individual. Time distends and warps as it will in such moments of trauma, and the professor loses track of herself until the morning when the chimes call him home. Erasmus, oh thank goodness. Where were you last night? We lost track of you in the crush. Yes, wasn't it glorious? All the speeches, all the hope for the future. These are the titans that paved our way, Petronilla. I must confess to being quite moved myself. Certainly, I am renewed in my dedication to my work. Erasmus, are you not thrilled? What an opportunity to see that convention in person. I'm sure you'll write a glorious paper on it. So caught up in their shared enthusiasm, the ladies do not notice that the professor does not follow them to the changing rooms. By the time they return to the lounge, freshly scrubbed and looking for a pot of tea, he has slipped away. Erasmus? What the professor did not say was that great moments of history are often recorded as veils across personal tragedies. If we truly understood the personal cost of public advances, would we be so blithe? History is made of blood and bone and the crushed spirits of billions. What would happen if transmigration gave us a window into the souls of others? Would mankind cease its barbarous behaviors? Can we learn to not distrust the other, to not grasp for more than what is offered, to truly value each and every human life? It is with hope that this can be true that I leave you, dear listeners. Please think on these things until we meet again for the tales of Sage and Savant. The Tales of Sage and Savant is a Twin Star production, brought to you on the first of each month from our Southern California studios. Starring Eddie Louise as Sage, Chip Michael as Savant, Emily Riley Pyatt as Abigail, and Justin Bremer as the narrator. Special guests this month were Della Rose as Elizabeth Caddy Stanton, Richard Norton as Herbert Baker of The National Reformer, and King Jaquel Martin as the great orator and statesman Frederick Douglass. Richard joins us from the podcast At the End of the Line, a rail tour of post-apocalyptic England. Find it on iTunes, Google Play, or your podcast app. Soundtrack music, sound design, and audio engineering by Chip Michael. Special music in this episode was provided by New Orleans Steam Cog Orchestra. Check them out at steamcog.com. We would like to extend our gratitude to this month's sponsor, World Weaver Press. Episode 208, A Most Shocking and Unnatural Event, was written by Eddie Louise. 
Are you interested in the historical and scientific information we included in this episode? Like us on Facebook or check out our website sageandsavant.com to find the facts behind the fiction. And finally, as always, we urge you to remember that death is no barrier to science.